0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 73. There's a tidal wave coming. What
1: you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy.
0: Welcome everyone to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The discussion I have here for you is a very interesting one. It is with Titus Gable. And let me just read to you his uh, professional biography. He's the founder, president, and CEO of Free Private Cities Incorporated and a partner at Niwe Capital. He's a German entrepreneur with a PhD in international law and an extensive worldwide network. Among others, he founded Frankfurt-listed mining company Deutsche Rostef AG. He retired as their CEO in 2015 and emigrated with his family to Monaco. And the subject of our discussion today is this book he's put out called Free Private Cities, Making Governments Compete for You. And I think you can imagine that this is something right up my alley. And without further ado, here is my discussion with Titus Gable. Well, Titus, welcome to The Bob Murphy Show. Thank you, Bob, for having me. So I think I did mention a little bit in the segment you haven't heard where I introduced you to the listeners, some of your background, but probably it would help. Just for you to quickly summarize, you know your your academic background to show why you have professional credentials to be talking about this topic of free private cities. So, can you just take a moment and explain to the listeners, you know, what, what your background is?
1: Yeah, of course. By education, I'm I'm a lawyer. I have a PhD in international law from Heidelberg University in Germany. I'm born German and lived there. Uh, in the meantime, I'm uh, living in Monaco. And uh, after several years, I decided that I'm not going to be a lawyer for the rest of my life. And I switched into the industry, first uh, biotech, then venture capital, and then eventually I founded the mining and oil and gas company. I I landed in the resources sector about 15 years ago and was also active in the US and uh, but mostly in, uh, in the mining sector and other places of the world. And the company is called Deutsche Rohstoff AG, which I founded with a partner in 2006, I listed them in Frankfurt Stock Exchange in 2010, and it became quite successful. We had uh, projects uh, all over the place, uh, Australia, Canada, the U.S., Germany, even Mongolia. And... Um, I could uh, retire at uh, in 2015 and I moved with my family to Monaco and there I was in the position that I could focus on what I found I had found out in the preceding years especially since the global financial crisis that something is intrinsically wrong with our systems but it's not the usual greed and capitalism but there's something that is really, I thought, um, I cannot solve by just uh, trying to convince people that free markets and self-responsibility is a good thing, um, but I had to do something completely different. Well, can I stop you there? So
0: in addition to your professional background, you know, getting your, your degree in international law and so forth, it sounds like you must have also, at least as a hobby around on the side, been reading, let's call it free market economics literature
1: yeah i mean i have i've been interested in politics since school times and uh, very soon found my way to the uh liberal spectrum or in in europe what you call liberal is what you call libertarian in the u.s i would say the classical liberal spectrum Mm -hmm. and um there you would um i began to discover the big writers, like especially Ludwig von Mises, Hayek, and Adam Smith. and But later, after 2008, when the only explanation of the financial crisis was capitalism and greed, I said, that's not possible because it has been there before. There must be an additional explanation. And then I started to go for the more um, libertarian stuff like uh, um Ayn Rand and uh, Ron Paul and all that. So the um, uh, it was a long away. I was also involved in, in German politics for for quite many, many years. I uh, was also a member of the classical liberal party. Later ministers in the German government were friends of mine. So I I had a relatively deep insight and I was also invited as a CEO of the mining company by the German government for some travel visits in official state visits in other countries. So I think I have had quite a lot of insight into the political world. But as I said, I, my conclusion was that there's no way to gain a majority for the ideas of free markets and self-responsibility.
0: Okay, great. Well, thanks for that. And so your your book that we're focusing on here for this interview, the title is free private cities, colon, making governments compete for you. And so I think people can get a sense of where you're coming from, but, and we'd like to just unpack this in the the course of this interview. So I guess in the beginning, just, you know, very quickly, what, you know, what, what is your basic proposal? So you, you said that you realized just getting people to go out and, and, Hey, vote for better candidates, you know, candidates who understand the market, that that's a hopeless strategy. And so what are you, what are you offering instead?
1: Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, if you imagine, Bob, a private company offers you the basic services of a state, which is the protection of life, liberty, and property in a certain territory within a host nation, as we call it, and you pay a certain fixed amount for those services per year, and your rights and obligations are laid down in a real written agreement uh, between you and the operator, not a fictional social contract. And apart from that, you are free to do as you wish. And the big difference is now you would be a real contracting party on equal footing, uh, enjoying a secured legal position. And you only become part of it, of course, if you like the offer. So what I'm doing here is I'm offering a product, a product on the market of living together, as I call it. And the reason why I came to this well, somewhat strange proposition is uh, uh indeed the experiences I made over thirty years now political engagement um it's as you as you mentioned, I mean telling people, okay, look, vote for the candidate who's maybe a libertarian candidate who understands the market and the incentive structure and that this is going to work to the benefit of all. He must say, this candidate, vote for me, I do nothing for you. And he's competing against candidates who say, "Who are promising that they are solving all kinds of problems, that they're helping the people, that they're feeding the people. So I think it's not realistic to assume that in any democracy, in any country of the world, a real uh, freedom-oriented, a real full libertarian candidate would ever win. I think this is this is self-delusional. If you think that this is is happening or can happen, because the, the the structure of all of us is that we like to make as least efforts as possible and gain as much as we can for that. So if I say you have to work ten hours hard and then you can make your fortune or make a living and be happy, and I'm competing against somebody who is saying, well, I give you $100 for free, you just have to vote for me, then I will always lose. Because I think even you and I would probably prefer the $100 without 10 hours hard work over the 10 hours hard work, $100, or be it five hours. So, And that's the problem. I call it the minimal principle, right? People, that's evolutionary. People don't want to make a big effort. If they can get it for free, it's a good thing. And the problem we have and all societies face, all societies, not, no matter if it's a democracy, dictatorship, or one-party system, or whatever, that is, if you have the power as a politician to promise people that you are giving them free lunch, literally, then people will love you, okay? And we... Freedom-loving libertarians are out of business, and that's the problem. And I thought, okay, now that I have recognized that, that is at least my reception of the reality. I thought, okay, uh, have a look into history. Is this true? What I'm, what I'm feeling, and what you can say is that uh, the real classical libertarian parties were always voted out of office as soon as mass democracy, one man, one vote, started. So obviously, there's a in all countries, even in Switzerland, in Europe, right? So it's I th- I think there's enough evidence that what I what I'm I'm convinced about is somehow true, and now I had to make a choice for myself, saying, okay, if you now know that, what do you do? Either you try another thirty years to convince people that liberty is a good thing and it's best for all of us. Uh, Or I take myself out and I expect, would expect a different result. (laughs) Or I take myself out and do something completely new. Mm -hmm. And that is what I have done. And I said, okay, I have to think if, if what we say is true, if what Mises and Hayek and all these scholars are saying is true, Rothbard, uh, Friedman and all of them, then If they believe in the market and the free market is the right place to solve problems and to make for a better living, then why do we not just take this idea of the market and put it on our living together? Because obviously, we are not successful in the market of living together because other people are offering a more attractive product for the masses. But this is a problem that many, many new products have, right? They have new ideas for a new product, but there's still a big market leader there and he's very powerful. But now here in the in the product market or in the service market, you have the possibility to just introduce a new product a no new product, and say, Okay, let's see if people like it. And I thought to myself, why couldn't we do the same? Right? There's no need to convince a majority. We only have to present a new product. And if people like this product, then, hey, uh, other people can see, wow, maybe that's not a bad thing. And so this is the was the first impetus to, to come to that idea. Okay.
0: So m- more specifically than or more concretely, are you, and again, I, I'm going to speak on behalf of people who haven't read your book yet. Mm-hmm. So are you saying of existing cities right now that we would go to the broader political authorities and and sort of get a special exemption carved out? Or do you mean like go to a currently uninhabited area and start a new free city there? Yeah, both of
1: it, right? So, I mean, in theory, the concept is there's unclaimed territory in the world. You claim it and then you establish your free private city where everything is based on a contract. And you have clarity because you know the contract in advance, and I cannot change it unilaterally. So it's it's a it's a clear rules, right? It's like it's like a service contract, not not more. It's it's giving it's it's a security mostly a security framework that's giving room for spontaneous order to develop. That's the idea. But in reality, of course, there is no unclaimed territory. So you have mm-hmm. to deal with existing states and. Anything else would be, uh, I would say, utopian, unrealistic. The reality is that the whole territory of the earth is taken, and if there are some terra nullius, special situations, then they this can change very quickly when the countries decide otherwise. So what we have to do is really to go the special economic zone approach that we, as you said, we carve out a certain area uh, ideally, it's completely uninhabited because we do not want to force people into that system. So this is the, the of course, the, the most difficult part is to convince states that this is a, can create a win-win situation. Now, here's one advantage that we have to, in today's world compared to other attempts in the past to create new societies. We have already more than 3,000 active special economic zones in the world. And some of them are even special administrative zones like Hong Kong or parts of Dubai. They have own legal system, own courts, own security, own laws. Hong Kong even has an own parliament and an own government, despite being part of China. Of course, it has some problems, but I just want to clarify the the, uh, possibility to... uh, create something which is still subject to a sovereignty of a state, but has a legal internal autonomy to make this happen. Now, if you go to a government, and I'm already negotiating with governments, what you do normally is you say, well, look, we are going to develop this rural area or even completely deserted area and bring investors that otherwise wouldn't come to your country. And then you will also gain from it, you will create jobs. And of course, there will be some payments for the infrastructure we are using of your state, et cetera, et cetera. And so that is something that's not completely just an idea, but I'm in it for business, right? It's also a business model. The free privacy operator would be a for-profit company because only then the incentives that the market normally is giving They would be there. And mainly these are to treat your customers well, not to waste your resources and to be attractive because otherwise you will not gain new customers. And you have to be uh, cautious because if you really make bad things, then people will go away and you will eventually become insolvent. So I think this is a much better incentive than any incentive our politicians have.
0: OK, so just to, again, clarify exactly what the, the concrete steps that you think are the way forward, you want to find areas that right now are part of the jurisdiction of some broader political state. Yes. But but yet have a very low population density. And then you want to get the, you know, the the overarching hierarchy to agree to allow much more specific property rights and and a a much stricter limitation on what the political authorities can do in this particular region. And then once that gets established and people, outsiders, see that this is being respected, that this, this deal or arrangement is being followed, then people will move into there because even though there's not many people living there right now, you're saying with, you know, everything laid down contractually and it being following market principles that could over, that could trump whatever the negatives were that are the reason right now nobody lives there.
1: Yeah, and especially, um, this is all right. I mean, first from, uh, let me talk from to, to your first part of, of your remark, which is more tactical, how do, do we do this mm-hmm. in practice? Exactly, this is, we have to really to prove that this regime is respected by the host nation, and I will say later a little bit how we do this in practice, There's also some legal stuff involved. But the basic idea is indeed that we just offer a deal to the host nation, say, look, we are coming with our autonomous zone. Let's call it a free private city, which is run by a by a private operator. And we agree with you on the extent of our autonomy. Ideally, it's it is 100%, but in practice, this is not the case. There will be some restrictions depending on what is politically feasible in that part of the world. Or in that particular country, so you will have to make some compromises. For example, we have a very advanced projects in Central America, and despite that, we think maybe it's a bad, would be a good idea to just stop the war on drugs and just make it available legally. So that the that would probably be the better solution. That's completely impossible in that part of the world, right? So we have just mm-hmm. to, to accept that and. But in other parts of the world, it's not so problematic, but they have then other issues. So realistically, you have to be pragmatic and say, okay, we have to make the first step and we have to make compromises for that. But if we ideally get some, and I have a list of 10 points, which is my wish list, so to speak, um, what we want or what we need from a government, and I'm asking, okay, what do you think about those points? Are you willing to grant those autonomy? And uh, then the negotiation starts. But ideally, if you come in such a free private city, you wouldn't deal with the host nation at all. You would only deal with me as a free private city operator, and you would have a citizen's contract. Right In the citizen's contract, it would, for example, be mentioned that some parts of the law of the host nation still apply because we had to concede that. But you would know that, right? So then you can make an, an informed decision in advance. You would have a look at the contract and at the level of autonomy we have, and we wouldn't tax anything normally. We would say, okay, what you need is some security infrastructure, and that is the fee that you pay for that. And so you you really know in advance what's what's going to happen. And I think this is one thing that, is one of our big advantages that most people don't really realize. The problem that we all have in our societies today, no matter what political system it is, is that, yes, there might be a so-called social contract, but the problem with this social contract is that it can be constantly changed by one side, and here's the secret, Bob, it's never us. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem, right? And that is the problem that basically you're a subject. They can do whatever they want. Oh, you give your vote away every four years and then not much to say. That's a problem. In In my normal life, I wouldn't accept that. I wouldn't buy a car if the seller would decide what type of car, what motor, what uh, interior, and even what price, right? I mean, no, nobody would make such a deal. But in, in our societies, we are exactly doing these deals. So if the government decides that you have to make a certain insurance for healthcare, or that, you, that they are subsidizing uh, some energy forms and, and others not, and you have to pay for a military uh, adventure somewhere abroad, and you cannot do anything about it. And that's not, that is what I thought, and that was the reason why I moved to Monaco, that's not right. You have to. You
0: have to. To offer an alternative. Okay. Yeah. And I think most of my listeners certainly agree with you wholeheartedly. And so, in, let me just be clear, um, Titus, so that in this interview I'll be mostly um, raising objections. But I, I love what you're doing, and the point is just to, you know, to try to overcome doubts on the part of some of the listeners. So, and this is something, and I'm just curious as your thoughts that, yeah, you would think, in other words, the 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 explosion in productivity that you and i i think believe would occur if cities could just r- refrain from engaging in really outrageous paternalism and you know violations of property rights it, it is surprising like you would think like why can't some private group approach the authorities in new york city for example and say look it, let's make this deal and you know we'll pay you a billion dollars a year if you agree to respect such and such, you know, in, in other words, it would, it would just pay for itself. You would think that the, the increase that you could call it rents or whatever, would it would to just have like a more stable tax code, for example, exactly. that whatever, whatever revenues the governments thought they were going to lose, you'd think yeah, would saying. more than pay for themselves. But I guess, so I guess one of the problems with that is like, as I'm just saying this to you now is that right now nobody owns New York city, right? That's the problem that there's, and this is kind of, this is Hans Hoppe's, One of his critiques of democracy is that no one really owns it. It's just every election. There's a new set of temporary caretakers that are in charge of administering the state apparatus, but you can't make long term decisions. Or to put it another way, right now, there is no group that you could actually go to and say, because even if you went to the federal level and said, hey, we want to cut out this deal with New York City. Wouldn't the next administration be able to go back on that deal? So I guess that's probably one of the major issues a lot of listeners are, are thinking is a problem here.
1: Yeah, and I think this problem is so huge that we we cannot solve it. And I don't know if you are familiar with the Sandy Springs project. That is this uh, nearly private, nearly fully privatized city near Atlanta, uh, Atlanta and Georgia, where uh, Oliver Porter was. Um, Uh, crucial for making this happen. And uh, they have basically privatized nearly everything except uh, police and courts. And uh, they found out that the cost is 10 to 40% lower and the quality is much higher and they have zero debt. So that was a big success. A lot of people moved into that town. Uh, But Oliver told me that, he's one of my advisors, Oliver told me that it was uh, many towns wanted to copy that model. But he said, in the meantime, even in Japan, about mostly in the U.S, but also one well in Japan, there are about 10 or 11 cities or startup- communities who adapted that model, but not a single one which was already existing. So because the interest groups that already have power, they do not want to give away power, even if they guarantee that for another example from Oliver, if they guarantee 25 percent less. Expense. Even then, they didn't get a majority uh, in in the council for that in the city council. And the other thing is that, of course, many people are afraid that they're losing their jobs who are working for the uh, administration. So, if you, I would say going to New York is a problem from that side, the other problem is that, I mean, if we are if we want people to voluntarily participate, it wouldn't be possible either in New York because Whatever I promised, there will be at least 40% against it, right? Okay, yeah. And and then I would have to force people into that. So that's one of the issues where that brought me to the thing that I say, okay, here's the thing. Let's start this uninhabited territory so that we do not have to force people into a system they do not like, and we do not have to overcome these Entrenchments of interest groups who are already there—that is the practical answer to the question. Okay, yes,
0: and, and I, I like that. Um, so, I, I guess one thing is, strictly speaking, legally, what is the deal being struck with the the, the existing political organization that has you know sovereignty mm-hmm. over that piece of land? Are you actually like wanting it to secede formally from there, and so it's its own separate little country?
1: Well, ideally, yes, but that's not possible in today's world. I mean, there are secessions, but most of them are not peacefully. So that is something we are not trying to follow. We would rather go the special administrative or special economic zone plus. That's how I sell it to governments. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the next evolution of a special economic zone. So we would, because it's, I mean, many people tried and you might have heard that some of Bitcoin billionaires also tried to buy sovereignty. That is not possible. Why is it not possible? I mean, in theory, it's possible, but in practice, in the political practice, if you sell parts of your land to a private company, the opposition would immediately, uh, have a, have an issue. You would call in the constitutional court. They would, uh, go to electorate and say, well, this guy's, Selling out our country to ruthless capitalists from whatever country, mm-hmm. so that no president can afford that, and even a dictator can probably not afford. It. So it's in theory it would be possible, but I think my my uh, assessment is we shouldn't go that path. That's too too controversial. Much easier to go the to this well to say we we are basically kind of special economic zone which is also not completely true because it's much, much more. I mean, we are asking for complete autonomy except uh, foreign policy and defense. And uh, as I said, it's probably, that's the ideal. In reality, we will have to make some compromises. But now here's an example. There's a country in Central America, uh, which is Honduras, and they have had similar ideas 10 years ago. And have even changed the constitution to make uh, something like that possible. If a special law and all that. And within that regime, it's called the Sede regime. You can have your own legislation, your own administration and your own courts. Um, you are still subject to some governmental overview and uh, there's a, State commission that has to approve your laws, but once they are approved, and they are, they can, they cannot make laws; they can only approve or disapprove. So you can create your own system in a way, and this is real; this is not just an idea. That that is reality, and and Honduras is only on the forefront. Other countries are having things experimental, experimenting with things that are similar. For example. In Dubai and in Abu Dhabi, you have two zones that have um, a legal system that's completely different from the rest of the land. And they have even hired judges from London to uh, uh, to be judges. So um, that is already happening, and that is helping us when convincing governments. You say, look, it's already there in Honduras in Dubai, and Dubai, and look, it's a kind of a Hong Kong um, model or Macau model. And this is indeed something which uh, is easier to sell because it's it's docking on something that is already known, namely the special economic zone.
0: Yeah. And I just want to mention for the listeners, I'll put a link, folks. So this is Bob dot com slash 73 if you want to see these links. And of course, we'll put the, the first link will be to um, Titus's book to order if you want to see it for yourself. But yeah, it's it, as I'm sure, you know, Titus, the, the academic literature is pretty clear like for example these economic freedom of the world indices hong yeah. kong is always at the top of the list and hong kong's economic performance you know is amazing and 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 so the you know the just standard empirical regression analysis that sort of thing objective measures of economic freedom go hand in hand with stronger growth and so you're right it's it's almost surprising like how come there aren't more examples of this around the world and i'm i guess partly it's just the the perverse effects of, of politics right. so can i ask you to because i think a lot of people what's occurring to them right now as we're recording this is there's all these protests and civil unrest in hong kong itself and so you know are, are some people are they cynical and saying well gee it's even with the success story of hong kong it's not clear that the chinese authorities are going to let them maintain even their limited sphere of autonomy yeah i
1: mean this this is a justified question and this is one of the biggest issues we have is how do we secure that the host nation is sticking to the, to the contract, right? I mean, there's a contract between Great Britain and China. And obviously the Chinese government is not willing to stick to that in any, uh, any longer or not in all degrees. So this is a typical problem we also would have. But frankly, everybody who's dealing with governments has this problem because there's no enforcement uh, instance above the governments so what how do you solve that problem in in like in the mining industry right so because you make an, an investment that might last you need 30 years or so a long payback time to justify this investment and in 30 years many governments can change and people can make different laws so what normally happens in such cases is that you say look we are making an investment. In our case, we are investing in a free private city infrastructure. and But we need protection for that. So, we have to agree on an investor protection. Or much more easy, if you have a, a, a project in Central America, as I said, you are just setting up your company in another country that has a bilateral investor protection agreement with that country. So... In case they are just marching in with their troops or just, uh, expropriating you, you at least have damage claims. And that is, can be very painful for this country because they will really shy away all kinds of future investments with, with that. On the other hand, I can tell governments, look, if you are if you are occupying the city, then we will just all leave. We are highly mobile, right? Uh, it's like here in Monaco. Monaco is a very, very small country, but it's a constitutional monarchy ruled by a prince, and this prince has a lot of power on paper. But if he would come up with crazy rules, people like me, and we are eighty percent of the of the population are non-citizens, we would just leave. And he knows that, and that is keeping him. Uh, uh restraint. So that is basically what, um, what I can, what I would do. Is there's a, there's a basket of measures that you can use for your own defense. The investor protection is the sharpest sort, but you would probably also not go to a country like China, which, you know, is very powerful and it doesn't care if other countries say, well, what you did wrong. So I would say rather, choose countries which are small or mid-sized, which have a reputation to lose uh, in in the world of sovereign countries.
0: Let's take a quick break from my discussion with Titus Gable to talk about my own work in this area of private legal systems and even military defense. And that's my pamphlet, Chaos Theory. So if you haven't seen that already, I encourage you to check it out. There's a free PDF download from the Mises Institute. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash chaos okay um let me ask you how you feel about this analogy so it you know we can imagine a biological metaphor and and there's different evolutionary strategies and so there's like the hawk you know that's very aggressive and it goes around and just you know it doesn't get consent from (laughs) the things that from the prey that it eats and then there's you know herbivores that just eat grass and then there's like a snapping turtle that isn't aggressive, but, you know, has a lot of defenses. And so in that sort of ecosystem, certain strategies are viable among a whole host of other strategies. So is that what you're picturing? That yes, there's always gonna be aggressive states that don't respect, you know, any kind of contractual arrangements they might've had, but you're thinking in the whole wide world, there's a a niche where this, the sort of approach you're talking about would would be sustainable?
1: Yes, and, the main reason is indeed money. If if a, if a state misbehaves by just bre- breaching their contract, right, then and if it's a state that and most states are uh, need for foreign capital, then they would be more cautious. Look, China doesn't need much foreign companies to come into their land, or they are so powerful that these companies would do it anyhow, but if, if China now started to expropriate companies, I would say then it's over for foreign direct investment in China. So they're not going to do that. China, uh, Hong Kong is a different story, right? But in, it's a, it's a, it's a special situation, but we would create a new situation based on a contract with this particular country. We'd say, okay, here's an investor protection clause, international arbitration in, in, uh, London, Singapore or, or New York. And, um, this is, a mechanism that is not new to the international uh, business community. So that is no not much difference to what we are doing. Yeah, I mean, I
0: think, and that's why I really was intrigued when I saw what you're, you know, you had a PhD in international law. So yeah, as part of what's going on here that, you know, forget esoteric things about a libertarian free society, but just in general, if you're some shipping company and you're shipping product to a particular country and the government just seizes your stuff at the at the port and says oh this is in violation of our laws and they're just making stuff up because they just want the property and i have to pay for it It, in, in terms of international law you have a recourse there you don't just throw up your hand and say oh well the government took my stuff
1: correct yeah and 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 that is basically our situation and um I think what we can offer really is is the framework, and you mentioned that um, the economic freedom, but much more interesting for companies that I can say from my own experience than low taxes or very high degree of regulatory freedom is a foreseeability, its stability. So if you have an ideal system, which is subject to a totalitarian leader who might change his mind next year or to a parliament which may come up with a new election and a new law in two years, this doesn't help you, right? Many companies Mm -hmm. told me or business partners told me, I'm rather paying higher taxes, but I know that this is not going to change for the next 10 or 20 years. So this is the problem we have today in many, many countries, including our own, that this is more and more unpredictable, how the legal situation will be next year. Because all kinds of ideas are popping up, all kinds of politics is popping up, why we need now this or that regulation. And of course, it's always easy then to tax the rich and the greedy big companies but again, if you if you think that, uh, especially in the resources sector, company companies really need at least ten years of profitable production; otherwise, it's not worth to make the investment. And so many countries can't even today, even stable Western countries cannot guarantee that. Right? It's mm-hmm. it's. I remember one one one. There was a, a gas project um, in front of the border of Israel. And the company said, okay, we need at least a guarantee that uh, um, legal stability for 10 years. And and uh, Netanyahu government was willing to give that to the company and then the opposition ran to the constitutional court and they said, no way, no way, that you cannot just overthrow parliaments. And, um, well, I mean, then... I wouldn't invest, right? If the parliament can change all the rules and said, ha-ha, it's democracy, then I'm not going to invest there. Then I'm rather going to a regime which might be less democratic but guarantees me a longer period. So this stability thing is not only important for, for companies, it's also important for individuals because you want to plan for your retirement and you want to have... A monetary stability to do that. You want to have to know that you are not forced into a new retirement system that you didn't vote for, et cetera, et cetera. So this is uh, something which is more and more becoming annoying for individuals and for businesses that there is no more predictability of the rules that will apply next year in uh, in our societies. And I think this is the total opposite of what you know from the market where you have a contract and uh, one side isn't entitled to change that contract unilaterally. So this, I think this is one of the big pillars of free private cities, why free private cities are better than our current societies. And the other one it's easy. It's, there's no more need to argue politically. And we, we are seeing in all our Western societies a radicalization of two sides. And, um, it's basically impossible to, uh, to live together with people who have a completely different view of the world. And that is not a problem with free private city because it's a product, right? I mean, okay. Mm-hmm. I, I'm as a, I want to make money. Okay, here's one product for the conservatives. Here's one way they can say, okay, we want only very limited immigration. That's not a problem. You do as you please, and you attract the people who like the same. Then you have a more social democratic model where you say, okay, we need, everybody has to make a big payment, but we are all solidarity to all people, and it's totally inclusive. Everybody can come not a problem, right? So you hear different groups, different target group, different products. And then something where you suddenly see that there's no need to, uh, for civil war or civil unrest or, or arguing with people and, 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 and being hostile to people because they have another opinion. Everybody chooses the product that, that fits himself or herself best. And then there's there's a lot of more peaceful. I think there's more peace in a in a world where you have one thousand different systems, than today where you have basically you have two hundred states, but only maybe seven different systems.
0: Yeah. So let me just follow up on that. And again, I I love the vision you're you're painting here, and I'm actually very sympathetic. But let me just push against it um, in the interest of defending the idea here. So if you're if you're saying that, hey, it's not that you're just going to have a one type of flavor that you you realize people have different preferences and maybe one city, one of these free cities will have, let's call it open borders, you know, very loose restrictions on on who can move into it once it's up and running, whereas another one might have, you know, much more. restricted barriers to entry. And again, this is all spelled out contractually. It's not that they change the rules in the middle of the game. Everybody knows from the beginning what the rules are going into this. Um, At at some point, what if, what if the critics said, well, well, that's the world we have right now. There's all sorts of different degrees of government intervention. And, you know, if you like Monaco, you can move to Monaco. If you like a totalitarian regime, you can move to North Korea and, you know, it's free choice and people can go where they want. And so how, you know, we—that's we, thats the world right now. What if somebody says that?
1: Yeah, but there's not a single system. Well, to a degree, we have some some choice. That is true, but it's not a single system where you have a real guarantee by any state, not even in Monaco, that are not going to change the rules tomorrow to your disadvantage, right? And you mm-hmm. don't have that guarantee in Singapore or you don't have it in Hong Kong. Uh, it's all the same. There's a small group of, of people deciding about your life. And the only thing you're allowed to do is to vote for Group A or Group B every uh, couple of years. And in my system, it's you have a contractually guaranteed a position and this position is not regulating all your life. It's just a it's a legal framework for security and dispute resolution. For all the rest, you're on your own. So you can you can associate with whomever you want, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's a lot of much more freedom and I think there's much more potential for development, which is now still unseen, of course, because there is no, no not such a system. But seen from another angle there is such a system in the in the free market world because you say everybody's entitled to bring a new product to the market and then people who like the product buy it and then the competition will say, hey, wait, this is a good product. We have to adapt our own products. So this is something which is already known, right? And you already know that if you are willing to become party of a contract, you wouldn't accept if the other party said, oh, by the way, you're, I'm delivering uh, more products to you that you didn't order, but you pay double. You would say, wait a minute, no, I haven't signed for that. I have only signed for one television or one computer, not two. right?" And you, and you can go to court for that. So this is basically the simple idea. You transfer this simple idea that we already know from product and services market to our market of living together. And that is new. Nothing like that is existing or has ever existed in the world. Well, it might be it has existed in early when cities started, private development started. Okay. But in today's world, it's not existing.
0: Okay. Yeah. And I, and I see how that is qualitatively different. I guess, can you speak a bit just in terms of the practicality? Like, so do, are, are you, like, what, what's your current state? Are you just right now fleshing out the theoretical details or are you actually looking for you know, do you have sites in mind as, oh, let's do one here, let's do one here and start talking to the respective governments? Yeah, um,
1: this is the case. And I, my plan was the following. I wanted to first to out, outline the idea. So I have created this website, com. if your listeners are interested. Uh, the next step was to write the book to, uh, to outlay the whole concept so that if, if I fail, others can pick it up from there. And the third step, which is now ongoing for about uh, two years, is really to find uh, sites to uh, negotiate with governments. There's one uh, side where I'm involved; uh, is in Honduras. This is very advanced. Uh, the legal uh, charter has been approved. The, the state has changed the constitution, have made a, a special law for that. And this is about to begin in uh, in the next months. There are still some approvals outstanding, but this is a relatively advanced project. Then there are a lot of people all over the world who support my idea, and they are coming up with special contacts they have to governments. Um, I'm currently negotiating with the government in uh, the Caucasus region and one in Africa. Maybe there's a second small country in Africa that is interested. and so the, this um is normally um, I'm relatively opportunistic. If somebody says I have a good contact into that country, uh, I, I can make a judgment on the political uh, situation. Then I say okay, then let's let's see what we can get out of our wish list, and uh, then see if it's worth really starting a project. The first it will be a lot of legal work, right? You have to make a contract with the government. Then probably the government has to amend some laws if not the constitution uh etc cetera, etc cetera. so there's a lot of legal work to be done and then of course you have to take care of how do you get the ownership of the land what is your autonomy status uh, and then you design the citizens contract for the people who are interested to go there so if your audience is interested in the progress i would i can only encourage you to subscribe to my newsletter that is coming every quarter, and there I'm discussing potential new projects. Or if projects are are really uh, up and running or ready to to go, um, then it will be uh, it will be set there. On the other hand, it's I I must uh, um, ask for understanding. Because this is political delicate, we often cannot disclose the country before the fact. So sometimes I have to say it's in Africa or it's in a Caucasus, or whatever.
0: Right. No, I understand that. So just out of curiosity, generically speaking, what does the arrangement look like? Did, Did you say to the host government, you know, we'll give you, I don't know, is it an upfront cash payment and then a pledge of... You know revenues down the the road based on the population or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious.
1: Yeah. no, well, this is up to negotiation, but I can give you the uh, Honduras mm-hmm. example because it's it's there. It is not not a not a contract with the government. It's even a law, and the law says that we have or the the city operator or the zone operator has to take a tax at least one tax uh, from the population, and 12 percent out of this tax income will go to Honduras. Right. So this is written in the law, and this is basically mm-hmm. what Honduras gets for their uh, military protection, for the infrastructure, for rural communities, uh, uh, and so on. And this is a typical arrangement. I mean, it, this is also fair, because in the beginning, you you are using parts of the infrastructure of the country. You are using the military protection of the country. Um, and in so far, it's fair to make some payments to that country.
0: Oh, right, yeah, and I certainly, if people, outsiders are moving in and they know the rules, that's fine. And you could even say it's not really a tax, it's just the price you're paying, the, the fee, you
1: know, yeah, to, to no, use he, this land. You would say it's, it's a fee, and the, but but in Honduras it said, well, it has to be a tax. or this. Right. It's, it's not a free private city model per se. It's, I would say, maybe 60, 70% free private city would be possible there, so it's more public-private partnership, but with tremendous autonomy. So, um, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's, For me, it's easier not to call it a free private city because a a Swiss consul told me uh, in an African country, he said, look, uh, free private cities, the concept is brilliant. But uh, two words that are not liked by politicians, these are the words free and private. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) city is okay. So better you come with a new name. And I said, okay, in this country, we call it a prosperity zone. But it's exactly the same concept. But, sure. right, so this is, I mean, you, again, you have to, it's It's not, maybe the, the libertarian uh, theorists would say, well, it's it's it's, it's not the perfect uh, libertarian model, It's um, that's true, it is not, but we have to start somewhere, and then over time it can develop, right, if people say, for example, I wouldn't run a city that has open borders, frankly, right, because the moment the city is wealthy, then all kinds of criminals from all over the world would come. And that's why there's no such thing in successful city-states. And the other thing is, I wouldn't say, okay, everybody should take care of his own security because this is a, it would result in a very big chaos in the beginning. And at the end, probably some uh, organized crime would, would settle there because they have the biggest security. So this is my, but here's the thing, this is my market judgment. You have the right to have a complete different view go To the market, and then we will compete and we will see who's more successful, and that's exactly what I want. I don't want to prove that I'm right, I want to start competition in a new market,
0: yeah. So, I, I mean, I really enjoy um the what you're trying here, and I think it's I love the fact that it's a practical application as opposed to just you know abstract theorizing. Do, do you have any um, do, do we have results at this point in terms of the limited? Experiences with these prosperity zones or enterprise zones or what what they're called, like have those the ones that have been tried uh, so far are, are the governments still respecting their end of the deals or is it you understand what I'm
1: asking? Yeah, I mean the, the the experience is somewhat limited, but what you can say is the more investment you bring or can promise, the easier it is. Then it is also so that there will be. Parts of the government who will be against your project because they fear a loss of power. That has to be counted in from the, from day one, right? So you definitely need, need the support of the, of the ruling party, of the president, uh, but also of the uh, pa- members of the administration because they can delay a lot. Uh, and in Honduras, for example, we are waiting for now for, for nearly a year on, for the approval of our courts because this, of course, means giving away some power. So everybody says, yes, we're going to do that. But in practice, they are, I would say, they're delaying it because it's somehow they feel uncomfortable. So these are things that eventually I think will be overcome. But um, these are problematic issues that the easier, I think the more you bring with investment, the easier it is. And the more that the people in the country can say that it's really improving their daily life and that they can move there and it's not for the rich only because you pay you. Look, we have calculated what you have to pay for our business, for our package. The fee is about $1,000 per year, right, instead of mm-hmm. taxes. So that is normally achievable. So, and in, 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 in developing countries, you can even go further down. So, It's not for the rich only or something like that. It's just a service that nearly everybody can afford. And and so far, if we can, I think, um, prove this one or two times, then it will have the same effect as uh, Shenzhen and other special economic zones had. They will be copied and copied and copied. Yeah, I I
0: certainly understand the vision. I guess my only uh, doubt is that, like, I know, for example, I'm familiar with the United States, I mean, it's it's clear cut if you look at the data on migration flows that the U.S. states that have relatively um, l- more economic freedom at the state level, you know, like no no income tax, things like that, they definitely have more Americans moving to those states than out of them. So plenty of people are moving to Texas. A lot of people are moving mm-hmm. out of New York and California, at least in terms of the internal migration. You know, California has mm-hmm. outsiders coming in. And and so you'd think, oh, gee, how come the other state, you know, the governors and, and legislatures at the state level don't see that? And what? And again, I think part of it is that the governors in New York, like the governor of New York State, is only in office for a short time and, and is not the the owner of of New York State. And I think if he were, he would have more sensible economic policies because he'd be thinking of with a forty year time horizon. So anyway, I'm, I'm just. Do you have any any comments on? I mean, I know I'm, I've sort of raised this objection twenty minutes ago, but. I guess that's the one thing that's making me not immediately think this is going to solve the problems in two
1: years. Yes, and I mean what you are describing is the wrong incentive structure, and you rightly mentioned uh, Hans Hopper, uh, uh, who also um, is aware of my my concept and is a is a, is a, is a supporter of it. Um, he, he put it down that there, there's a wrong incentive, right? You don't you're not responsible what for what is happening to to your community in 10 years when you're out of office. And even if you make big, big mistakes, the worst thing is ha- that can happen to a politician is that he's voted out of office with a big pension. That is the worst thing that can happen. So they have no real incentive. They have no skin in the game. So that's the right. problem. Mm-hmm. So now what we can do, if we would, for example, put up different free private cities all over the U.S., Then it wouldn't solve the problem for all these countries, but you would have some areas where people could say, Hey, it's better working and people would move there. And this would then make some competitive pressure on the other cities to improve their system as well in order not to lose too many really productive people. So I think even if we are, we will remain a niche product for a very long time, if not forever. The the function alone will will be very important, and some people say that uh, China was the new China was modeled after Hong Kong because Deng Xiaoping has seen that Hong Kong was working and their model wasn't, and so at the end you can say that Hong Kong has changed China more than China has changed Hong Kong, so I think there is there's some truth to that. Um, there's some merit to that observation, and and that is something that we can achieve, even if ninety percent of the current world remains as it is.
0: Yeah, I like that observation a lot about China and Hong Kong, and I yeah I agree with you. And I think some listeners might who are cynical, they might not realize that that you know the the, the Chinese system has has transformed tremendously, even though nominally it's still run by the Communist Party. It's, you know, there's many respects in which, you know, China has engaged in a lot of um, pro-market reforms, let's call them, over the last several decades. And that's partly why, you know, the living standards there have uh, multiplied so rapidly. Um, I suppose another analogy that occurred to me is, tell me if you think this is okay, that, you know, right now, so libertarians for a long time have been complaining, in the United States at least, about um, the licensure of, of taxis. Right, so like it, like in New York City to operate a, a taxi, a yellow cab, you need a medallion, you know, because they have a monopoly on that. That the city and those medallions are very valuable, and it restricts the supply and increases the price. And then and nobody cared about it. you know the average public didn't really care much about it. Libertarians were writing essays about it. nobody cared. And the way that model was disrupted was not by convincing public opinion and voting in people who were going to repeal the taxicab monopoly, but instead just the development of Uber and Lyft and, the and you know, these rideshare operations that even sometimes were operating in a quasi-illegal fashion. And just when the, when people saw with their own eyes how good it was and, uh, oh, yeah, taking an Uber is way cleaner and, and more safer than a cab and cheaper. That's what gets the average person to realize, oh, yeah, the taxicab mon- mon- uh, monopoly was silly. So likewise here. Instead of you trying to change public opinion and get people to vote in better politicians, you're just going to go ahead and just start showing them this is what freedom looks like. Compare this, you know, with your own eyes.
1: That's, that's a fantastic analogy. Indeed, you just present a new product and you don't. And then let, let's see what happens, right? People will come, they vote with their feet. And, and I'm using normally the, the iPhone analogy, uh, but maybe your Uber one is even better. With the iPhone, I say, okay, look. Uh, Eleven years ago, when the first iPhone was coming out, I could have made a for a, um, a referendum or asked people, "What do you think?" It's a handheld computer. You can make phone calls with it. What do you think? Is it a good thing? And maybe most people would have said, "Well, well, nice to have. Don't need it." But instead, you just present the product, and then people can touch it, can feel it, and Three years later, later there were only smartphones on the market. So, um, indeed, instead of arguing, I would say stop arguing, start building something new. That would be also my advice to most of your audience or to to all of them who want to start something new. It's probably, frankly, relatively fruitless to try to convince people Imagine a discussion on television or during a conference. How often have you observed that at the end one of the participants then stood up and said, "Well, yes, you have convinced me. I was wrong. You were." (laughs) How often is this happening? Not very often. And. And in mean, so far, don't waste your energy with that. Um, I mean, it's good to spread the ideas, but it's more important to do something so that people can see. And we need it also because it's not possible, despite what many people think, especially young libertarians, that they can study Friedman and others, uh, uh, Daniel Friedman here. Uh, no, what is his name? Dave, Patrick, David Friedman, Patrice, father, David Friedman. Yeah, David. Freeman. Yeah, David. Um, uh, the machinery of freedom. They said, "Okay, here's a here's a here's a model, and this is the perfect model, and all societies must work with that." Dad, That's we have found basically the holy grail. That's not how reality works, right? You have to try it out. We have to try it out, and so far we have to start sooner than later, because once there's a one world government, it's too late. Right. So right. now is our time, and the time is right. There's so many people so fed up with their government. And there's a, there's, a, there's a poll that says in the Western, or I think all over the place, uh, about 80% of the people are not satisfied with the way they are governed. I mean, that's really a lot of market dissatisfaction. And if we can present, the, they're screaming for new products, I would say. And there are a lot of people now. Another product that hasn't been voted for by majorities is Bitcoin, right? A lot of people have a lot of money through Bitcoin, and rightly so. They have made a lot of money because they are investing in the right thing at the right time. And these people can now finance that kind of new ideas. And so um, I'm happy if anybody says, okay, I like some of Tito's ideas, but some I will do differently. Please do that. We, we need competition. And the other thing is that what I found out in personal life is people are really different. So probably it's not true that libertarian world would be the best of all worlds for all of the people. Some people don't want freedom. They want guidance, and they want to believe in something, and they want a leader. Let's just say, well, that's how the world is, but not for us. <laughs> so we need something right. new. Uh, but people should have the choice, right? We shouldn't become the same kind of problem political person that says, huh, "I know the right way to live, and everybody has to obey uh, because I know it better." Forget about um, that.
0: Well, yeah, my yeah, my joke is um, after talk after arguing with libertarians on social media for years, <laughs> the idea of living in a city just with other libertarians is it's horrifying a to
1: me. <laughs> yeah and i look um I, I found out um that it's also likewise uh, equally difficult to work with libertarians on such a project if it's only on a on a, um i would say ideological basis but what I'm doing now of course there are libertarians uh which are partnering and and working for me but this is for profit, right? This is a real business. Okay, you deliver, you get your money paid, and then we, you have to to, do your job. And if you have other ideas, sorry, this is my company, okay? And this is the the only thing, that's one of the reasons why many of those libertarian projects failed in the past, like the New Hampshire project and all that. You bring a lot, a big group together, 10 people, 20 opinions, right? And that cannot work. Uh, Really, I think there's much more Pushy. If you have a for-profit company, say so we want to make money with that free private city model or prosperity zone, and um, this is how we go.
0: Um, one quick clarification: that the uh, taxi cab analogy was um, I got that from Jeff Dice that he, that he mm-hmm. made that point. And I like your idea too of Bitcoin. That that's and I've said to try to get people to understand the possibility of privately created money, even though there's you know the historical examples of gold and silver and so forth. They don't get it because they their mind, nope. the government, you know, money is what the government issues and then Bitcoin and, you know, and other cryptocurrencies come along. And then at least a lot of young people now at least understand, oh, OK, yeah, there's a possibility that you, you the market could produce money and they can see um, with their own eyes that that's, that's at least possible. Um, if if you have time, uh, Titos, just for one last uh, topic I wanted to ask you about, I'm just curious, because you brought up Patrick Friedman. So I'm sure you're aware of the the proposal for what's called seasteading. Where you're gonna sort of you know bit, taking off of like an ocean liner model, but then building floating cities. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious what how does that is that one possibility? And just as long as the technology was there, that fits into your model, or do you think that's the wrong approach? No, it,
1: I'm a member of the board of the Seasetting Institute. <laughs> okay,
0: well there you go. I should have done more. And, and here's, the, the here's the reason why.
1: In the beginning, and I'm also you know Patrick very well, and. Um, here's the thing. In the beginning, the seizing idea was really we go outside of the uh, uh, of sovereignty of the in the high seas where there's no sovereignty of states. But for several reasons, that didn't work out. Is also because the uh, exclusive economic zone is so so large, right? It's uh, several hundred miles. So they said it's a more easy is to go within in the territorial waters and make an agreement with the host nation. And that's basically the same situation that I have. So we have Mm. a lot of uh, synergies and uh, supporting each other and helping each other. And uh, if if your uh, audience is is having a look at the um, the video about uh, one minute video about what a free private city is, the voice is uh, Joe Kirk from the Seasetting Institute. So okay. and there's a small piece that in uh, on the water in the background that was the concession I had to make <laughs> in the video. So we we I'm I'm very well aware and I think it's again it's it's also kind of a competition, but that is something I want to create. Uh, consider all of the people who are active in these areas not um, competitors. I I consider them colleagues because we first have to create a market uh, and and then we can talk about which is the better. We're just a better model. Okay, well, great.
0: Um, this was a very uh, interesting discussion. Uh, folks, my guest today has been Titus Gable, and the book is Free Private Cities, Making Governments Compete for You. Uh, Titus, thanks for your time. Thank you, Bob. It was a pleasure talking to you.
1: You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.